Like if we have privatized notions of hope, where we think hope is only about what's in our head and how we feel, I feel like this moment shows us that hope is 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 a public notion. Like like mm. we help each other um, encounter and experience hope, and is is really I feel like how we've been created. Um, to be, this is how God has created us, um, that, that we're, we are not these separate entities, these individualized pods of, you know, whatever, but that we are, we are supposed to be one. And, you know, if, if it's hurting you, it's hurting me. Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco Russert, co host and co producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. In this episode, we are talking about theological education and ministry with individuals who are incarcerated. You'll hear from Gia Johnson about the struggles that COVID-19 has placed on her prison ministry at Cook County Jail. You'll hear from Dr. Sarah Farmer, who will help us wrestle with the shape of hope and community alongside individuals in the prison system. And you will hear from Mel Webb, a leader and emerging scholar whose research and work to create educational opportunities on the inside deepens our collective call to restorative justice. So Gia Johnson, and I live in Chicago. Um, I've been here about three years. Um, I'm not a Chicago native. I am originally from El Paso, Texas, um, but have been out of Texas for, for many years now. And I currently serve as the program director for um, McCormick Theological Seminary's Liberative um, Solidarity Building Initiative for Liberative Carceral Education. At, and it's a program at Cook County Department of Corrections. I want to kind of jump right in to some of the Cook County work. Mm -hmm. Um, But even before I do that, and I have a feeling it'll tie together, but tell us how long you have been doing, and I borrowed some language from um, different things that I I read about you, but how long have you been doing justice-making work? Yeah. Um, So I'm going to, so I feel like I've been doing this work my whole life. um, If I can be honest, Uh, the language of justice making is, is really language that I learned while doing my, uh, my degree, my master's of public ministry at Garrett. So it's the language they used and it really just kind of helped me understand a little bit about um, my own design. So I'll just say when I was two stories, um, when I was about 10 years old, um, me and my mom were driving to my grandmother's house and there was an old, There was an elderly woman and she was walking along the street. It was super hot. If you've never been to El Paso, there is um, a time of season or part of the year where it's just incredibly windy. And it was that time. And she was carrying these bags and um, she was walking with her head down because her back was like hunched. And I insisted that my mom stop the car and that we go back and we pick her up and we take her to give her a ride somewhere. And so um, years later, like within the past, like five years or so, as I was kind of doing my own work around like, what's my, who am I and what have I been called to do and what's my purpose? Um, I remembered that story because my mom brought it to my attention and she was like, you know, you've, you've cared about people your whole life. Um, when I was 21, I dropped out of college because I was a mess is what it felt like. I was looking and trying to just figure out who I was. And so I left, um, I left El Paso packed up all my clothes in black bags and hitched a ride to Phoenix to go spend a year with my best friend. My parents refused to allow me to take anything with me other than my clothes. It was the roughest, hardest, most enlightening year of my life. Called my parents to come pick me up because I knew what I wanted to do. And I wanted to, I wanted to work with youth and I wanted to help them find their own purpose and make sense of, of their life. And so I ended up working at a residential treatment facility for at-risk um, youth. As that's what we, that, that's how we identified our, that was the language we used back then. Um, recently, within the past two years or so, one of the young girls that I had worked with, she was a middle schooler who was pregnant, um, reached out and just kind of was, found me on Facebook and was just like, you know, thank you. Um, thank you for, for, for being with me during that season of my life and heard about her child and all the amazing things she's doing. And so I say that to say that 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 what I learned because I didn't grow up in the church, I didn't grow up steeped in 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 Christian doctrine or theology or wasn't in the church um, much growing up. 
But when I finally, my faith was activated in my early thirties. Um, and when I finally made my way to Garrett, um, in my courses, you know, they really talked a lot about what it is, what is justice? What is, what is, what is God's view of justice? And just coming to the realization and understanding that it's really about being in right relationship. It's about being in those life-giving, flourishing relationships, um, not only with just with neighbor and one another, but in relation, right relationship with yourself, um, right relationship with God. And so when I think about works of justice making, it's really about that. It's about working um, to create ways of being in life-giving relationship with myself, with God, with others, and even in my connection to systems and institutions. Um, and so from, from like a a vocational or career perspective, um, it is the way I was trained at Garrett was really around um, public ministries of advocacy, organizing, um, and, and just those non-traditional ways of doing Christian, um, non-traditional ways of living out your call as a Christian. Mm -hmm. Talk about the theological studies, the um, liberative education that you are working on at Cook County Department of Corrections. Yes. So, um, so the, the, the program, um, where to begin? So the program is, so, so McCormick started this program back in 2018, but they did a lot of the legwork before that. So Jenny McBride, who, um, Dr. Jenny McBride, she was a, she, she did her work, her, her doctoral studies at Emory, and she wrote a book called Radical Discipleship. And it was really centered around a lot of the work that she had did um, at um, a, a women's facility there in Georgia. And so when she came on board at McCormick, you know, her book had published and they, they, President Crawford read the book um, and was like, let's start that here, you know? And so they went, they went and did the legwork of reaching out to see what, what prison facilities or jails or, or places could this type of theological education be done. And so Northwestern was at Stateville and so a lot of other places were at Stateville. And so the one place that didn't have this type of, of, of education um, educational opportunities was Cook County. And so the program started out as a two-part certificate program um, pilot. One course was in Bible. And then um, at that same time, or there was a Bible course. And during that time that they were teaching the Bible course at the jail, I was taking a course with Jenny McBride through the um, through through the Acts Consortium. It's um, where you can do registration from other theological schools, and so I took this course with Jenny on like prisons. And in that course, I was also doing work around reentry entrepreneurship, and I was managing a, um, a a program there. She invited me to co-teach this Intro to Theological Reflection course. Um, the following spring, I believe it was. And so we went in and we taught the course. We were at Division 10, a maximum security division. We had about 12 to 13 guys that we were meeting with um, once a week for 10 weeks for about two and a half hours. And the class was really around, it was really Christology. Um, and and they we, we definitely, you know, we read um, a variety of, of libera liberation, liberation, liberation scholars mm -hmm. um, who are doing liberation theology. And so, and at the end of that course, the guys were like, Hey, are you all going to come back? Like what are you all going to continue to do this? And so we were like, yes. And so I still remember it was me, Jenny, president Crawford and my boss. Now her name is Nanette Banks. We all sat down after we had done, um, we handed out certificates and, and kind of um, had a, a, a graduation ceremony, if you will, um, there at Division 10 at the end of that course. And we just and we talked about the vision and the plan and what could be next. And so I decided to go forth and and use the work that I had started there at McCormick as part of my capstone project, a ministry project mm -hmm. at Garrett. And um, in that in, in, in the studying and the wrestling and the, and the being engaged in that work, I started to see like, huh, like we're doing more than offering theological education. Mm -hmm. What does it look like for us to come alongside or the institution to become um, institutions that are in the service of solidarity, to, to put your resources and your networks and your power in the service of those who are the least of them. Mm -hmm. And so, and so from that, for, for, so from that kind of frame um, is, is where we're, is, is, is how I'm kind of entering into this conversation around liberty theological education at Cook County Jail. It is the work that I believe that McCormick has been doing for a very long time. Um, they, and this is why we're doing this work because they have already been doing it. 
And so the program as it stands today, um, in, in the midst of COVID-19, you know, a, a pressure cooker happened for us, I believe. You know, we were right in the middle of our winter course and we had to switch and pivot and um, and, and kind of redirected some of our efforts. Um, but in the midst of that, um, we also put a lot of language to what it is that we're doing. And, and, and we kind of framed it out where we have four pillars and we're looking at this as a, as a multi-pronged community driven um, curriculum. I say community driven because the program resides in the office of community engagement and alumni relation. Um, and so, and so the program is the center of our program are, is, are the students who are detained and incarcerated at Cook County. And we orbit around that. I'm curious, you mentioned that, when COVID hit, you know, everything changed and you had to pivot. And I love the language of innovation that you're using too. Um, can you take us into really what, what that was like when the information dropped and everything had to change for your program? What was that moment like for you? Yes. Um, it was, I think, you know, I had just started and we were just, we we were right in the middle of finishing up our winter course. The guys were just about to finish their projects. We had been planning um, to do a group um, um, into the course celebration. We had Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was going to come to class and talk with the guys. Wow. Um, and it was going to be so. So DePaul is also there. So DePaul was going to be there, and and we had several folks from within the McCormick community that were going to be a part of there, and we were excited you know, about being able to celebrate the fruits of the labor of, of the students that we were with. And it was like from one minute to the next, it was like a, a total disruption in connection, mm -hmm. um, in relationality. Um, and, and so, and, and, and then a state of like, well, what's happening? You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. what does this mean? Like, okay, so 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 here we are. And I was sick, if I can be honest, I had gotten sick at right at the onset of COVID. Um, here in the States, I had been traveling. And when I got back, I was, I got sick. And so I couldn't go into the jail a little bit before they actually had said that, like, we're actually stopping visitations, mm -hmm. because I knew that I was not well, and I didn't want to go in there and, and, you know, give anybody anything. And so, and so there was this moment of like, okay, well, number one, how, what does this mean for, for the students and those folks who are detained there? And so that was the first question, like, well, you know, are they going to be able to have access to hand sanitizer and wipes and the things that they need? And like, mm. how can we support those efforts? Part of what we're doing at the program through this um, through this platform of liberty theological education is is mitigating those barriers to social, political, um, and material resources. And so, and so we can do that in, in this one pillar around theological education, but then what does it look like to do that in the midst of pandemic and crisis? And so for us, some of the things that we did was we put together a COVID-19 um, plan, solidarity plan. And we put um, everything that was being done at McCormick, we tried to mirror the same thing for the students there. And so there was emergency funds for students on, on campus at McCormick. Well, we offered mm -hmm. emergency funds for the students at Cook County. And so President Crawford um, put money on their books. Um, we did that for over three months. And um, and it was, I believe it was like between 100 and $150 that we put on their books, mm -hmm. um, material support. And so some of this logic is also recognizing that when we look at prison demographics and, and we know the racialized nature of incarceration, mm -hmm. um, we also recognize too that like our students are being financially supported by family members who are more than likely part of the essential worker group, mm -hmm. community. Right. And so there's a financial burden for them just in virtue of pandemic. And then you add that on having a family member who's incarcerated or detained. And so and so the, the, this logic turned out to be true because a few a few weeks or maybe a month after we had done that, we got an email from one of the students mothers that thanking and saying, thank you. Like you, you know, my son messaged and said, mom, you don't actually have to put any money on my books mm. because president Crawford from McCormick put some money on my book. That's so awesome. It's so awesome, right? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Right. <laughs> so great. It is. It's so great. I love it. I love it. It's awesome. Right. Um, and so, so that was one thing we did. We also, we launched this letter writing solidarity 
initiative. And it was, okay, so we, in the absence of connection and community um, and, and the students not being able to have visitations, what if we do this letter writing campaign? And so we did that and we were able to recruit letter writers and pair them up with our students who were, who were incarcerated. Um, and, and so that was another way of continuing in, in, in this, um, in the community building. We also did a prayer collection where we invited the McCormick community to offer prayers. We actually just finished it. It'll be printed and it's going to be, it's, it's really great. And we're going to distribute that to the students there, um, at, at the jail and, and then elsewhere. I feel like I might be forgetting something, but those are some of the those are a handful of the things that that of how we pivoted and responded to to the to the pandemic. Yeah. And I mean, instead of just like stopping, you just continued on very innovatively. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's powerful. Gia, tell us a bit about you talked about um, a student's mother and you talked about Mm -hmm. some of the guys. Can you talk a little bit without, you know, of course, naming actual names, but tell me about some of these students, some of the personalities. What what is bringing them to theological education? Yes. Yes. I'd love to share about them. Most of our students um, come from some sort of, um, Christian background with the exception of maybe like one or two. Um, and so faith has been and prayer has been an active part of their life, especially in this time of, of, of incarceration. So I'll never forget this. We, right before COVID, um, Sheriff Dart actually has, um, a, it's, it's a collaborative of higher ed. So we're one of many um, academic institutions there. And he gathered us all together and we met the students and kind of heard from them and the, their experience with these different programs. We broke out into subgroups. And one of the students who's in our course, point blank asked, asked us, what is your end game? Why, why are you all here? What, what, what do you want to see happen? Um, and like, are you wanting to make model inmates? and and it's like keep going keep talking you know like um and so and he's like because for me you know I'm here because my life depends on it like I want my freedom Mm -hmm. and I need this to do something for me and so you know that the conversation that he started there carried on in a conversation that we had in in a class before we left and so I invited him to like write it out you know, talk to say more about what it is that you want, you know, and 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 how can McCormick come alongside and be a part of that conversation with you? And so and I assured him, you know, that we aren't here to make model inmates. You know, we we, we care about um, the whole of your person um, and, and, and we want in the ways in which we are able to we want to be able to come alongside that. And so his conversation, I mean, we look we, we also very much so invite our students to be co-creators with us in, in classroom culture culture and pedagogy um, and curriculum development in by, by sharing their insights and the things that work or then don't work and let us tailor this around what makes sense for you in this current setting. And so, you know, he asked for assessments and basically saying like, I need an assessment so that when I go to court, you know, that, that I can present that. Got it. We can do that for you. Um, but then taking a step forward, further, but, you know, and, and in his, in his experience, in his dialogue, he's like, but, you know, there isn't, there's no way of making sure what's the checks and balances to make sure that this information is really truly taken into consideration and that it actually has a tangible concrete impact on whatever the sentencing is, whatever the outcome of my trial is going to be. And so that conversation that we had there um, ignited me, to be honest, to go and find organizers that are doing this work. And went to one of the coalitions, higher ed, um, higher ed in prison, brought this conversation there, ended up meeting other folks that are kind of working in this in this space. And through these different connections, um, we were able to initiate what we've now what is called community partners and dialogue. And it's and it's and it's solely focused on um, folks who are doing this work to support folks um, programs at the jail. And how do we think critically about these questions Mm -hmm. and these issues? so, so one other thing that I'll say about the students, um, one of the other, one of the, the same student that's the organizer, um, one of the things that he said in that same conversation with these academics is that in the four years that I have been incarcerated, I have received a better education mm. than in the four years I was in high school. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
that that's a problem. Wow. That's a wow. huge problem. Right? Mm-hmm. That is a problem. You our communities, black and brown communities, should not have to go mm-hmm. to incarceration or prison mm-hmm. to get a better education. And so if we start to think about the story that led to incarceration, we find that an injustice was was an atrocity was committed against him far before whatever it was that landed him in jail. And let's have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, so when we think about doing this work, like it is justice work on so many different levels, right? And, and, and reparation work mm-hmm. um, and, and educational reparations. And so, I, so, so these are the ways that we're, that we're kind of coming to this work in conversation and in dialogue and building these relationships with our students. Mm-hmm. Gia's call for justice had us inspired and it had us asking new questions. If theological education with people who are incarcerated is not about making model inmates, if it is instead meant to attend to the whole lives of human beings, we begin to wonder about the role of hope. We hear a concrete calling in the people that Gia is serving, a call for hope that is both spiritual and productive. With COVID-19 impacting programs like the one Gia leads, we also begin to wonder about the role of hope for a population who already struggles with isolation. So we talked with a scholar who could help us think through the role of hope in programs like Gia's. Yes, so my name is um, Sarah Farmer. I live in Marion, Indiana. Um, I've lived here for about um, two years, two full years. Um, So I haven't lived here long. And I am um, a professor in the School of Theology and Ministry. I'm Assistant um, Professor of Practical Theology and Community Development. Can you describe some of your, your research interest and scholarship, especially as it is focused on marginalized populations? Sure. So much of my scholarship um, has either focused on young people who have been marginalized or um, particularly because of their race and class or Um, women who have been incarcerated. And oftentimes when I talk about uh, populations, um, marginalized populations, I'm actually um, talking about the concept of hope. Um, Mm. And not just what it means, um, but also what it does for people. So how it functions and how it operates kind of in their life. And so, um, for instance, um, Dr. Wimberly and I wrote a book called Raising Hope. Uh, where we were exploring kind of hope-filled pathways with young people. Um, And with that research, um, one of the main things that I think we try to bring out is that um, hope is multidimensional, hope is holistic, um, that it matters um, not just uh, psychological, but but physical, economic. um, The whole of life matters for a person to feel like um, they're flourishing. And so a lot of times, in my scholarship, I'm really, I'm really talking about hope as, um, as mobile and as movement. Um, and I really started to think about hope as movement when I started to work, um, do work in a prison, um, with incarcerated women. And I really started to think about hope as mobile, um, because of how the women would talk about, uh, what hope meant for them and what hope did for them. When you say that, like be, it being mobile or movement, can you talk a little bit more about um, what the incarcerated women meant and then what you gleaned from that to think about the concepts of hope? When, when we would go into the prison, um, oftentimes um, you could not call a woman by their first name. So they would, they would have to address you as um, Dr. Farmer, Dr. You know, miss whatever. And this would be for not just you, because oftentimes I would take students into prison with me. And so the students would be part of the class. They will also have to call the students by their last name. And so um, and so we, we practice, the students will also just have to call them by their last name. Well, one day, and I'm just going to be honest, I, I felt like I was kind of patting myself on the back. And I was kind of like uh, kicking the system a little bit where I'm like, 
uh, I, I call someone by their first name. And for me, it was like, I just want to human, you know, like I want to yeah. recognize, um, you know, recognize you by name and I, and I see you and I, um, and you know, for the first time I saw her, like, uh, she kind of like looked at me and, and corrected me in class, but and basically told me this is her last name. And, um, kind of got a little salty with me and I really didn't understand why. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I realized that for her, her name is very recognizable. So if you, um, so one of the things, if you go into mm-hmm. the prison, you can type anybody's name into the system and you can find out kind of like what they did. Uh-huh. And so, um, and so for her, when I call her by her first name, um, it it basically um it kind of created a a sense that maybe the students are going to go and look up look up like look up uh, what i did um and so what i started to think about is what what if you no longer want to wear your name because it is so connected with your past um once one uh, scholar says our names are labels plainly printed on the bottle essence of our past behavior mm-hmm. and so the reason why she became so offended and corrected me in front of the class is because for her, uh, withholding her first name actually kind of severed her from her past crime, um, at least for the duration of the, the class. And so even as when women began to talk about their identity, oftentimes what they were talking about in the kind of in the interviews is this sense of like, I don't want to be held back by my criminality. Like, I don't want it to be once a criminal, always a criminal, that that kind of identity of being a criminal becomes static. And when people look at me, they look at me as um, kind of guilty um, without getting space to prove I'm innocent. And so it forecloses my ability to become who God, who God has called me to be or who I would like to be um, because of um, kind of the labels and things that's put on me. Um, and so for, for her being able to actually call her by her last name was a, an opportunity to, to reframe and kind of rename her identity. Um, but just this idea around hope, um, when people feel stuck in something, um, sometimes they feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about, so your work, um, the theological implications of your work, um, uh-huh. the the certificate in theological studies, the the work in women's prison, is is this work theological? And I know our Princeton Seminary is is doing some um, work inside prisons. Many seminaries and divinity schools are. Is it theological? And if you believe that it is, how? Yeah, I I think um, first of all, I think when you go into the prison. It's a place where uh, men and women are already wrestling with the big theological questions of life in a very intense way. Mm. Um, and so um, they bring those questions with them into the classroom right. um, and, and challenge, you know, challenge um, the professor, challenge whoever's teaching in those spaces uh, and whoever's in that learning community to think, um, think differently. Um, but I also become, b- believe that the prison, um, those classrooms become a place where men and women start to reframe their identity and rename themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, you know, you get to be, and you get to be on a journey where one's faith is seeking understanding in, in real life time. Um, and, and what I mean by that, so I, an example is like I was uh, teaching a course on perspectives my hope. And, um, you know, I saw a student, um, she's an inside student who had come a couple times and this particular time to the class, she looked very like, she looked very withdrawn and she like was kind of, um, just a little pensive. Um, and so after we finished, I went over to her and she was like, I just want to let you know, I won't be back. And I was like, what? Why you why you won't come back? And um, she was like, you know, we're talking about perspectives on hope, but right, I can't, I can't afford to talk about this topic right now because of where I am in my life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, just I, you know, like, and of course, this is also during a time when um, there was a lot going on with um, a death row, an inmate who was on death row at the time, who um, eventually was executed. But um, she, you know, you know, all of this is happening in the backdrop of us talking about perspectives on hope and putting God on trial. And, you know, Mm -hmm. as she's even looking at her personal, you know, wrestling with her personal lit realities about um, whether or not she's going to get out, um, uh, getting, getting news that, um, you know, whatever she put up for was denied. I mean, just, and and so the questions that sometimes we take for granted Mm -hmm. and we kind of like theorize and is distant from the realities of our life like those questions are like in real time you know um when we're in the prison context Mm -hmm. and so for me um is is absolutely theological because um I just I, I feel like people are sharing out of the 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 sacred spaces of their of their, their actual lives. And it, it makes, um, that space sacred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not just questions. It's, it's life or death issues. Right. It's not just theory. Yeah. And I, and I feel like just in regard to like the ministry aspect of it, um, like being in that setting enables people to see, feel, and experience God's divine presence in the midst of the chaos. Like, um, it, it declares what appears to be kind of not even ordinary, but dehumanizing, right. As, as sacred, it becomes sacred space. Like, um, like in so many of the like interviews and times I've talked to women about the classroom, I mean, they feel like they step into a new space. Like they're no longer in just the prison. Now, of course we have interruptions when folk come in and have to do count. Like, okay, a quick, you know, reality check. We are still in a prison. Mm-hmm. But though that time and that space becomes very sacred space. And I don't know what is more theological than to be able to move our bodies into a space that has been deemed by society as a place for the unredeemable and then go in there and begin to redeem the image of those people in our own hearts and minds, um, even while we invite others on the outside to think differently. Because I do, I feel like when students go into those spaces, the the people that they thought were so, you know, they had all these stereotypes and all this um, kind of perspective about who they were when they, before they went into those spaces and they get in those spaces and they start talking to the men and women in those contexts. And before they are, it's not, you know, they, they're human, they become human to them. Now they've always been human. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. um, but it just, I feel like it reintroduces us to a grace that is not abstract or theorized, but Mm -hmm. it is lived out, you know, in the midst of building kind of that community. Um, when I taught the class last semester, um, and we, it was our last day, like all my students were like, crying because they realized as they were leaving that they wouldn't be able to see them anymore. Of course, there's real strict mm-hmm. boundaries in regards to writing letters and things like that. But, um, and of course, the reality is that they can leave, right? We can go out. But the men and women who, who are in there, um, we don't know if they're coming out. I mean, right. of course, most people do, you know, come out and return into society. Um, but it's, but not right then and right not right there. So I do think it's theological. I'd love to hear where you see the fingerprints of resilience in, you know, I'm thinking about the people who listen to this podcast and the ministry leaders and the ways in which, um, so many people have, I just think they're just working, 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 you know, they have their head down. They're trying, there's so much need to address. And there's so many questions about how to address needs. So I'm wondering if there's a way that you can talk about fingerprints of resilience that you see in, you know, it can be anything, Dr. Farmer, from the the communities you've worked with in, in prisons during, you know, times when social isolation was just 
and was and is a huge challenge um, for folks too. The way you see maybe fingerprints of resilience in other ministry leaders um, from your from where you sit, you know the the people like you who are doing work in these kinds of contexts right now, who are doing chaplaincy or you know responding um, to need in in many different ways. I'm sure. So, um, I think when I, you know, I, I'll start with the prison just because, um, I, I think about like, man, um, so many examples out in my research, I call it creative resilience, but so many examples of women taking the resources that are at hand and making what society has said is nothing or that's discarded or, you know, um, like, like magazine paper, you know, mm-hmm. and allowing it to, um, kind of recreate their experience in that space. And so an example, for instance, um, I remember one woman telling me about how big it was for them. And of course, this is like, subversive right because they shouldn't be doing all this but preparing a meal together in prison and how they would like it it was like a big thing to get them ramen noodles Mm -hmm. and how one person would like secure the the green pepper and one person would secure (laughs) you know like the onion and they would like cut it up together and they would make a meal and like they would create a table you know, a, a communion, a space of communion in the midst of a space that was deemed for people to be more isolated from each other, right? Like, especially in these times. And so even just like when I think about social isolation, like, I think part of what has been interesting is the innovative ways that people, like I said, with um, the, the, the women I, I talked about with get through the vent, um, but the creative ways in which people have tried to figure out how not to isolate. Like, I think during this time, we realized that we need each other. We need people. Like, mm-hmm. we need the human interaction. Like, it's been hard not to do that. I just feel like, for me, like, being able to to realize, like, like if, if the church felt like they weren't needed, I hope, I hope that this, um, provides a sense of encouragement that like the the world needs us. Um, they want, you know, they want us, they want us authentic, yes. right? They don't want yeah. us, but they want us in, in, in the innovation to kind of be the church um, that's not gathered always in the space, right? It, it forces us to realize that, that our buildings are not the church, but the, the body and, and the spaces where we gather become um, spaces where, you know, God comes in the midst um, and shows up and, and we can encounter God in those spaces and in those, you know, m- ways that seem mundane, but that really matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one, yeah, I'll share one other thing. Um, when I, just because I, I, I keep thinking about when I, I mentioned the magazine, so one, some of the ladies would talk about how they would literally cut out um, cut out different images within the magazines and like put it on their toenails so that they would have toenail polish. Um, some of them, wow. you know, during Christmas, they would use toilet paper to create a nativity scene. You know, just like, you know, mm. you go into a prison, sometimes the walls, you know, you think that they're dull, but when you start to see the art on those walls, I mean, literally they become agents in recreating that space, enlivening that space. And I think that that's what churches and ministry leaders and, you know, nurses and first responders have done. They have become people resources. They've become agents to kind of recreate, um, recreate this, this, this crisis moment and turn it into a moment where God is in the midst, even Mm. in this crisis, God is in the midst and oftentimes it's through people serving other people um and so if we didn't think like if we have privatized notions of hope where we think hope is only about what's in our head and how we feel I feel like this moment shows us that hope 
is 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 a public notion like like mm. we help each other um encounter and experience hope and it's, it's really I feel like how we've been created um to be this is how God has created us um that that we're we are not these separate entities these individualized pods of you know whatever but that we are we, we're supposed to be one and you know if, if it's hurting you it's hurting me you know we are not individual separate entities this profoundly theological claim made us think of mel webb mel is more of a seasoned ministry leader than the typical emerging ministry leaders we feature on this podcast their emerging leadership led us to a conversation on personal agency and collective agency which addresses and deepens our response to the privatized notions of hope that Dr. Farmer talks about. Mel's journey into theological education with incarcerated individuals is near and dear to us because it started here at Princeton Theological Seminary. My name is Mel Webb. I live in San Antonio, Texas, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Circle, which is a humanities-based prison education program at a state jail and at a state prison in the South Central Texas region. Mm. Wow. And can you describe your research interests and your scholarship a little bit? Sure. I uh, I study state and well, that is a great question. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time. Yeah, (laughs) Um, I think the core of the the core of what I study is uh, how how we have pastoral effective pastoral responses to sexual and state violence, to forms of harm that disrupt our ability to be in authentic community together, and that often drive us into places of shame, or that cause us to think that our problems are individualized just on our own shoulders without being able to see the kind of wider um, forms of systemic violence that shape what possibilities might be available to us. Um, And I'm very interested as we grapple with those realities and thinking about what, uh, what personal agency and communal agency, collective agency looks like uh, in the recognition of the depth of harms that have been done to our communities um, across race lines, across uh, gender lines, uh, and and how we have a, a form of hope that continues to drive us and, and draw us uh, towards our longings for, for a future that is both desirable and imaginable for, for all members of our, of our society. Yeah, wow, Mel. Beautiful. It is beautiful. Can you, can you define violence in, in what you're saying there? I, I have so much follow-up because I think it heads straight into racial um, yes. justice, but let's, let's talk about violence. What, what you mean by violence? So when I say violence, I am thinking of both psychological and physical forms of harm that, uh, have some level of intentionality. This might be individual. It might be, um, a collective intentionality to use force to, uh, to do harm to another. Uh, would be the simplest way to that. Um, and so this isn't just, uh, I, I think we often underestimate the level at which psychological violence is also physiological. How trauma, even um, uh, without our bodies being touched, has a physical bodily impact. And that's a form of harm that um, that I do encompass within violence. So I think in my work, I often prefer to use the language of harm. Uh, that 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 feels a bit more capacious in some ways because violence does trip us up often in terms of what we mean, what the parameters are of what we mean. So I feel like this is a point to go straight to the implications of this um, when we talk about racial justice and when we talk about the the work that's happening in prisons and the populations being served in prisons. Um, how how would you describe that intersection of racial and other types of justice in in that work? 
in the work I've done in, in prison education, and this has been uh, since 2013 for me, it's work I got involved in during my graduate uh, studies at Princeton Theological Seminary. I have felt driven into, in many ways, examining my own whiteness within the school system and the ways that I had certain kinds of success that um, some of my peers from high school uh, didn't necessarily have. and that I sort of passed through my first several years in higher education without thinking too hard about that. And then in February of 2016, um, so I'm from Orlando, Florida, uh, and, you know, living up in New Jersey for about four years at that point, uh, but went on February 26th, uh, 2012, excuse me. Um, Trayvon Martin was shot by a neighborhood watchman in a neighborhood not too far from where I grew up on the north side of town. I grew up on the south side of town. Uh, I really felt drawn back into, like, before this became a national story, uh, in engagement with with friends of mine from growing up on social media, really starting to grapple with, like, oh, this is a this is shifting how I understood what it meant to grow up in the in the neighborhood I grew up in in elementary school. I moved in middle school, but uh, the neighborhood that where there was a similar seeing the neighborhood watch signs that started to be shared on media that were like, those were the neighborhood watch signs, like two houses down from the house I grew up in. Mm. And those signs signaled safety to me and starting to have to reevaluate what, what it meant that um, I had that sense of safety in my body uh, by being a white kid in that neighborhood. And one of my friends who started writing on on his uh, social media in early March of that year about stopping playing outside with us and what his parents were saying to him about like, stay in this neighborhood, the next one over is way more. Uh, you'll draw way more attention there. Here's what you do if you do interact with one of these people. Uh, and then as he got older to the point where he just stopped coming outside to play with us, that I had never understood what happened in that uh, as a young kid. Um, and to hear him start to articulate, now this was uh, this was because my parents feared for my life, not just my safety, feared for my life. Hmm. And and that, that did send me into a, a sort of re-evaluation that I think during my time at PTS was fairly underground for me. Like I didn't really know how to integrate that with other questions I was grappling with around gender-based violence, or um, which is what my dissertation focuses on, uh, looks at the Augustine's response to experiences of rape in the city of God. Um, but as I was thinking about the the ways that harm gets in and, and, and creates possibilities for self-understanding, uh, experiences of, of belonging and connection within community, uh, I was also finding like, well, what do I do now that I'm starting to kind of understand? I don't feel like I have everything I would need to say something about this, but what can I do? And there were opportunities to to teach in the prison system um, through the New Jersey Scholarship and Transformative Education and Prisons Program that Princeton University had an arm of instructors that taught through. And I, I started doing that work as, um, I think, one way of trying to literally work out in my body. Um, mm -hmm. I, how do I make sense of where, what I've, where I've had this felt sense of safety, where I've been told the danger or threat is? and and then what do I do with the, the particular set of possibilities that my life path has afforded me in response to some of this uh, newer realization? And I'm kind of forming this question as I ask it, Mel, but, you know, I hear you saying that you very much embody this question of how do I make sense of the space between safety and threat? Mm. And... I'm wondering where you have encountered that same question in the work that you do every day. Are there are there places on the ground where I'm I guess I'm curious as to whether or not that question's being asked by you know by more than you and where you see it being asked whether it's in 
the work you do every day with the reading that you're doing on your dissertation about Augustine's responses to, you know, the experiences mm-hmm. of rape in the city of God or with it, if it's with people you encounter in your everyday. I think a question that often comes up when, when people hear that I, um, I've taught in prisons, that, um, uh, both the program that I had opportunity to start through Princeton Seminary, uh, through the continuing education office there and the the program, the philosophy and literature circle that we run here brings outside learners in to study alongside incarcerated scholars. And um, uh, because of the kinds of stereotypes we have about people in prison and about what the prison space is uh, and the ways that in our, in our sort of collective imagination, we rely on the prison system. We rely on policing Mm. to give us a narrative of our own safety and community that 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 person, if we call the police on them and they get taken to prison, like we we're safer together because we have that as a form of agency we can take. And then we imagine these prisons as spaces where there's this high concentration of people who are a threat to us otherwise. Um, And so going in, uh, we'll often be invited to, to affirm that um, uh, in in conversation with folks who who might not have had the opportunity to meet someone who's incarcerated, to engage in deep dialogue with them about issues that matter to them, that matter to us collectively, uh, the sense that these are people to be feared. And and myself as a survivor of sexual assault, I think. Uh, some of the ways that I work out my own experiences of safety is also finding like, okay, how do I, how do I acknowledge the realities of harms that have been done um, mm. by people who, some of whom are incarcerated, many of whom are not, mm-hmm. um, and and negotiate the need we all have for for connection. That in fact, mm-hmm. connection and compassion are are the best forms of self defense we have available to us. Uh, violence breeds more violence, and uh, that's not to say there's never a place to interrupt violence with uh, with some form of of force. I think communities of color, in particular, understand this that that there is a need for certain forms of self defense to interrupt an immediate threat, and yet our longer term vision has to be oriented towards restored relationship, towards building a beloved community. Uh, even across those lines of harm. And that might not be the person who's been harmed with the person who harmed them specifically as so much restorative justice is oriented towards. But I think there can be a broader vision of that, of how we shoulder that together collectively, that our experiences of harm give us wisdom. Uh, And in many cases, the people who have done severe harms within their communities have experienced severe harm as well. Uh, they themselves often know better than any of us why why those patterns of harm exist and what must be done uh, to disrupt the the ongoing transmission of those patterns within their communities, within their lives, within our lives together. And it, it's a very sort of shortcut to safety that I think we've built with um, the way the prison system functions in our wider imagination that we can try to have a, a kind of a settled sense that here's a way of just bracketing off of almost creating I mean, literal walls behind which we hide, quote unquote, those kinds of people. And that does a great disservice to many survivors of sexual assault, given that the vast majority of that of that kind of harm, instances of that kind of harm are done by people who are have been in intimate relationship with, um, and not by intimate necessarily partner, but familial neighborly relationship and it is well nigh impossible to to sometimes imagine uh how the majority of people responsible in particular for sexual harm are our neighbors are our family members uh and so when we have a narrative that makes those people monsters it makes it all the much more difficult for us to really trust when someone comes to us and says, hey, I've been harmed in this way by this person who might actually be dear to you. And our response to that is often, well, no, no one I care about, none of my friends would ever do that. Mm -hmm. None of my 
no one in my circle would ever do that. Right. Um, and I think that's one way the prison system, the the sort of social imaginary we have around who does harm as monsters, uh, disrupts our ability to to recognize the basic humanity of survivors as well mm-hmm. as people who would just be telling the truth about a set of their experiences and and the person who caused that harm in their life doesn't have to be a monster to have caused that harm. Right. Right. Mel connects some of the dots for us. We ventured into these interviews wondering about how COVID-19 has disrupted various programs in theological education with people who are incarcerated. And of course, it has. In some cases, it has forced folks into the opposite direction of digital engagement, taking learning into a purely written format. But we also discovered the kinds of disruption that these programs are bringing about in their communities. Disruption is showing up in the creative resilience that Dr. Farmer talks about. It is in the restorative justice that flows out of Mel Webb's leadership and scholarship. It's in the institutional movements towards solidarity that Gia describes. We wanted to give Gia the final word. So I will say this, like, my work here is very much so deeply connected to my own connection to um, the carceral system. And that is through my younger brother. Um, so, so we, I am a system impacted person by way of family member and watched my brother struggle um, in his own, um, the absence of visibility for him, right. And being able to um, get connected to resources while he was in pretrial detention. Um, watching how his own faith was activated in the midst of pretrial detention um, and a person that came alongside and mentored him in that space. Um, And then the series of barriers that kind of led to an unraveling and, and access or leading to, you know, the, the underground economy or the informal economy that kind of, that then, that then led to this path of being a victim of gun violence. And so, you know, I've, I've seen the devastation. I've seen how mm-hmm. that's impacted my own family, right? Um, while doing this work it, at what I'm doing here in Chicago, Cook County, also wrestling and, and experiencing the same fears with my younger brother, mm-hmm. right? The, the same fears around what would it be like if he actually got detained and was incarcerated. And so so I bring all of that into this space when I do this work. And so I think some of the creative ideal, ideation is, is, is really around like... Um, sometimes out of my own place of helplessness, right? Of like, man, like I, I want to be able to, 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 um, to imagine with people alternative ways. And so be, because some of that is just seeing how, how our own family has struggled. Um, but I think the scripture that comes to me around visibility is, um, is the story of Hagar, mm-hmm. right? Um, being taught, being, being pushed out um, of, of a family and connection and, um, a place of belonging because of strife or jealousy or, or, um, competition, you, you know, um, I'm just, I'm just going top level in terms of the story. I'm not going to unpack the story. Um, but then, but then to meet God in the wilderness, mm-hmm. right. To meet God in that space of like desolation, isolation, and, and, and to, and to know that you are heard, Right. Um, to, to have that encounter with God in that space. And, and, you know, and, and so I think that that is a scripture that is this big biblical narrative that, that I hold dear to me. Um, I think about, um, I think about just Jesus's life, how the way that Jesus walked with people that were unseen, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and made them seen, um, unto death. Right. And so I think that, so yeah, so I, I think that Jesus' whole life um, tells that story of what it looks like to be seen and to be heard and to be loved, to be enveloped, to be brought into community with another um, and to be met there in, in those dark, in your darkest hour and to find that light, right? To find warmth in, in, the, in those dark places. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, Gia, you just yeah. quoted oh my, my favorite Bible story. <laughs> so Hagar is my favorite Bible story. And one of the reasons is because it's like, there's no reason that there's no um, initially obvious reason that she would be focused on. And then she, 
I, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but I think she's the first one who gives God a name. Mm. And she names God El Roy. You are the God who sees. Right. Right. And it's interesting that one who is, who could have been so easily unseen is the one who has the agency to first give God a name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about Gia Johnson and the Solidarity Building Initiative at www.mccormick.edu. You can learn more about Dr. Sarah Farmer at www.indwes.edu. And you can find her recently published book, Raising Hope, on Amazon.com. You can learn more about Mel Webb's scholarship and their leadership of the Philosophy and Literature Circle at Dominguez State Jail at colfa.utsa.edu. And as always, you can learn more about us and Princeton Theological Seminary's Inside program at the Garden State Youth Correctional Facility at ptsem.edu.